Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, which is the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our declaration on women's sex-based rights, which has been signed by 36,847 people from 160 countries and is supported by 515 organisations. So um, we have uh, some new organisations just signed up. So take a look at the website to look at those. It's really um impressive to see all these 515 organizations that are supporting the um, Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. We have many volunteer activists, including country contacts from every continent, engaged in defending women's rights in this way. Please join us as a volunteer. First of all, we're going to hear from Linda McDonald from Canada about why uh, she signed the declaration. Um, and then we're going to have Jean Sarson, also from Canada, um, who these two co-authored the amazing book um, about non-state challenging non-state torture as a form of violence against women, the book Women Unsilenced. So they're going to talk about their work a bit and why they signed the declaration. And then we're going to hear from Kate Barker, who is the CEO of LGB Alliance, who giving a broad overview of what's going on with LGB Alliance. And then we're going to watch a short video uh, from Sue Clark, Australia, from Women Up Queensland. I'm really pleased to say we have Linda McDonald, uh, who's going to talk about uh, why she signed the declaration. She's a global grassroots feminist activist standing for the human rights of women and girls who have been subjected to non-state torture. Together with Jean Sarson, she co-authored the book Women Unsilenced, Our Refusal to Let Torture Traffickers Win, recently released an audio version on Audible and a French translation, translation is coming soon. And then together uh, with Jean Sarson, who will also be talking, um, uh, works on violence against women and girls, a lifetime activist issue, is a lifetime activist issue. She's a writer, mother-loving of twin sons, now men, grandparenting positions. She's a gardener. She's anchored by patriarchal mis misogyny. And um, uh, Jean has a nursing background. So I'm I'm really thrown back to three years ago when I was, Jean and I were writing the book and um, Jean does most of the writing. So I was spending a lot of time on the internet and that's when all of the trans issues were coming forward and I was getting more angry and more angry and more angry. So about two and a half years ago, um, some of the NGOs started accusing any feminist who was pro-biology of women being um, sex beings, that we were anti-feminist. That was it for me. And I was hearing a lot about the um, um, drugging of children. And I'm a nurse. And the biology of knowing, giving children puberty blockers, we just, I knew that it was wrong then, even before the science started talking about it more vocally. So I called, I was up at three o'clock in the morning and found the declaration. I thought, holy, look at this. So I called Jean the next morning. I said, we have to sign this, you know, have a look at it. If you're not going to sign it, I am. So that's how we started. And it wasn't long after that, we signed it as Persons Against Non-State Torture. We were contacted to come and speak, which was a thrill for us. And after that, we had our book published. We signed it in March the 7th of 2021, and our book was published in September. 
And so since that time, um, it's been an uphill battle. It was an uphill battle trying to get our book published because um, even other feminists wouldn't um, publish our book because we were talking about the United Nations. And I know that many feminists feel that the United Nations is totally against women. And, and I don't believe that. I know that there's many, much infiltration in the, in, the, in the United Nations, but there are still good people there that are standing. And one of them, I believe, is of the present Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, Reem Alassam. She's been supportive of our work. And I'm, I'm one of those feminists that plans to stand and fight and um, try to rid as much patriarchy out of the United Nations as we can. And I feel the declaration is import, an important part of that. And also, um, as I mentioned, I was thinking about the children, but I was also, Article 8 is such an important article for us in the declaration because it's all about violence against women. And really, um, it will not be accurate until we have uh, the torture of women named in the declaration or anywhere in the full continuum. Most times you you rarely hear women talk about us as women or girls being tortured. And I have this book, Women, Church and State, which I know was reviewed on uh, WDI and Bernadette McDonald taught, brought it to me. And I mean, they're talking about in Bath in, in 1664, that six women were, were uh, put to death and right in, in the square and people were walking by like it was nothing. Well, you know, the torture of women, we have a long history of it. And all of a sudden, in 20, in the in the 21st century and in the 20th century, it went quiet. It's like the biggest scam of patriarchy ever. Because so much of what happens to women is torture. All of pornography is torture, in my opinion. All of human trafficking pretty well is torture, in my opinion, if you're captive. What is more torturous than captivity? All the strangulation that's going on in so-called sex relationships now between heterosexual young women who tell us about how often strangulation is happening to them without even their consent, which who would ever think you'd consent to strangulation? So... Um, I just think that I'm so connected to the witches and right up to today, I, the church was the main torturer back then. Now it's more non-state, you know, that patriarch has transformed it into hotel rooms and bedrooms and uh, movie rooms, but we're still being tortured as a, as a gender, as a sex. And it, it has to stop. So I'm asking women to be brave and especially feminist women, how, how are, who's, who's going to talk about torture if it isn't feminist women? I hear more women that are feminists talk about torture, but I'm, I'm asking you to join us and really read our book. If it makes sense to you, use the language so that we can get it named and have it under Article 8 fall under Article 8. So I'll kind of backtrack. Uh, like Linda said, uh, she called me in the morning and I was so busy writing the book that most of the information that was going on around us, it was kind of secondary to me because in writing, it's like I need the space to kind of think <laughs> and I kind of zone out. And Linda tells me, I know you're writing again because I'm kind of zoned out. So that's an, kind of an ongoing relationship that she and I have, that when I get into writing, I'm in a different space and thinking differently. 
anyway, um, what happened when she came and called me in the morning and she's telling me what she's just told you and I'm trying to think, okay, how does our book fit? You know, do we fit into the declaration? So what I did, I went into the declaration and read it because I really, to be honest, had not been focused. I was focused on the book. So I wasn't focused on the declaration and what was happening. So as a consequence, as I went through the declaration, I said to Linda, okay, Article 8, we have to talk about Article 8, how important it is. We really want to um, go over um, how important, this is our book, I'll talk very briefly about this. This is why we signed the declaration. It had to do with our book, like Linda said, and how upset we were. I'm a nurse too, and we knew about puberty blockers and how dangerous that was, but the book is about non-state torture and how silenced um, women's voices are. Back when Linda said, when we signed the declaration, we read Article 8 and said, you know, that really fits. And interestingly enough, we just designed this model just like three weeks ago because we were struggling here. There's just the two of us trying to do all this work and we've never had time to really say, okay, if somebody asked us, what kind of work do we do? How would we explain what we do? We really didn't have a visual image and we had been attending a webinar on state torture and they had a model up there and it made us think, you know, that's very interesting. I wonder if we could um, take what we've done and put it into a model. And this is the model. And what I'm so thrilled about is that we created the model and then we looked at Article 8. And we're going to go around Article 8 and the model just to share with you how proud you should be of how effective Article 8 is, how right on tap you as writers, all the people who wrote it, all the women who were involved, how applicable it is and how exciting it has been for us to read the writing of Article 8 and apply it here. So we're just going to talk about how it fit for us. And this is why now, three years later, we can say it was a wise move for us to sign the declaration and apply Article 8. So you can see there's like six sections. So we're just going to go around and um, show how they link to each section of uh, Article 8. So the first one around self-assessment and uh, non-state torture and the universal questionnaire. Now the universal questionnaire, uh, what that means is that we started our work in 1993. And the first woman was a woman in Nova Scotia and we both grew up in violence and we both had sexual sexualized violence um, 
victimizations, either as children or young women. So we had a sense of what domestic violence was and what personal victimization was. But when the first woman, she calls herself Sarah, came, she started disclosing forms of violence and human trafficking and so-called human trafficking related to prostitution and pornographic victimization that was beyond our concept. And she started naming it torture. And we looked around and of course, she was born into the family, a family that started torturing and trafficking her from the time she was born really. So we started listening and realizing that we were being taken into what we've called a co-culture because the perpetrators were the neighbor next door, the doctor, the nurse, the social worker, the teacher, the professor, the, the businessman, the lawyer, the judge, you know, the fisherman. And it was a whole new reality that we had to try to understand the culture of the perpetrators. So <clears throat> when you look at the A of the um, Article 8, it says you're talking about to recognize those subjected to torture. So this is where this fit. And we said women have the right to name the type of violence that they endured. And we have a responsibility to listen and to work together. So the universal questionnaire briefly lists 48 victim-centered statements, how they describe their victimization to us. And we wanted to keep it on one page. So uh, we did, there's 48 forms there and um, it's in their language, how they were beaten, how they were kicked savagely, how they were raped, how they were strangled like Linda mentioned and choked. So it's all there. So that fit under the A that of Article 8. Uh, the next one, uh, Linda, do you want to, Linda and I can do the next one around, we had to figure out how to help Sarah and other women that came after her heal, because there was nothing in 1993. There wasn't even a name. There wasn't even acknowledgement that non-state torture happened. And of course, there was no way uh, to find any resources that would help us um, how to help women heal. And we believed women were healable. <laughs> you know, if we didn't think they were healable, why would we even start? You know, so that was the fundamental principle. So Linda and I just thought we would um, give you a couple examples. Uh, Linda, do you want to talk about Lynn? Yeah, so as, an, as a nurse, I was a care coordinator. I'm retired now, but back then I was a care coordinator and this woman uh, had MS and she uh, was a ca called a difficult client because she was angry and lashing out. And really, I figured she was triggered by something. And the VON, the nurses here, wanted to, wanted to stop looking after her because they didn't want to deal with her responses. So I went and asked her whatever happened to her in her life that would have caused her to re to act such, way, such a way. And she started to unfold all this torture and trafficking that her husband, her legal husband, she was married to him, 
uh, had subjected her to. And um, so Jean and I started listening to her story and she was held captive in a windowless room for four and a half years on a floor and a mattress and uh, her husband and three other men brought men in, in just constantly to rape and torture her. And uh, she had five forced abortions. I mean, she almost died so many times and then she escaped and she came back to Truro where we live and she told the priest and he told her she was an evil woman and a prostitute and go back to her husband. So she never told another soul till I met her in 25 years later. And uh, once she learned her story and could tell it in a way that she wasn't blaming herself and tell the nurses, they started to care for her with respect and she died with dignity. So that's the the difference. She had to the victimization is she had to tell her own story to understand it for herself and for us to explain it to caregivers. So the trauma-informed care you're always hearing about, and that's just talking about your response, but nobody's letting women talk about the victimization or the crimes, the human rights that they endured. And that's the, that's an equally important part. So that's an integral part in our work, the victimization, traumatization, informed care. That's like, um, the article eight number or B section really. And then we moved on, we'll move on to the C section, the, the idea of promoting research and the writing of it and the education of it. So um, recently um, I've been working on an article for Linda and I, and we think it's research that's never been published, never been really done because we've been doing this for 30 years. So it's a collection of uh, research, uh, predominantly of women. We have a, a few men um, that have done some of the questionnaires, but our work has been with women. So I'm on the third, third writing of it um, because it, it just doesn't fit anywhere. And when you're doing feminist research, you get connected to the people, to the women. We have relationships with the women, even the first woman in 1993, we still have connection with her. And um, how to get their voices out there. So I'm on the third, uh, third attempt uh, of writing it and hopefully to submit it again to another uh, publisher to see if they will take it but what's really we were rejected by the other patriarchal yeah. that's, yeah. The, that's the point as a feminist yeah. try to get your work they, they don't want women's voices in research that's what we've learned <laughs> wow. yeah, trying to get there or trying to get the images because if we're listening to women sometimes what they have to do they have to draw what happened to them. And what we see in that is if they were very young, when they were victimized, they didn't understand the crime that Linda was talking about, the victimization. They didn't understand what was being done to them. So what we see if they draw often, then they can do a reflective um, integration of what was happening. And when they know it's a crime, what we've learned is that that gives them space to understand it was not their fault. We were in a webinar once and a woman said for 30 years she was going to therapy and nobody told her there was a crime that was committed against her. So we know that's important. Anyway, the activism, uh, it takes women, uh, women's voices, tells us how many uh, 
have been victimized, how they've been victimized, and to validate um, what the everyday person um, thinks, whether there's a distinction between assault, which is what in Canada and what generally um, law does. They want to say that a woman was assaulted and not tortured, not state tortured. Uh, 776 people responded and they we asked them to differentiate with the 48 items on the questionnaire, whether they saw them as torture or assault, if they were being inflicted on one person, either once or many times. And predominantly, there were only four out of the 48 that they questioned, and some of it was misunderstanding. We've talked to thousands of women all over the world. And the interesting thing, and the also the challenging thing, is since we've been doing it for 30 years, we're still connected to so many. So we're talking to more and more women. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot of networking, but it's very important. And as you know, advocacy is the only way that you get an issue on the table. So we're doing a lot of social justice work at the United Nations. And uh, we've been going to the United Nations for years, since 2004. We're mainly working in Vienna now, but what's going on is we, we meet these silos that Vienna says they only deal with crime and Geneva says they only deal with human rights and neither one wants to deal with it. So um, that's why Reem is so important because she's kind of broken through those silos and she's listening to us and we're, we're formulating uh, victim impact statements that we can uh, challenge our own country. And so that, that takes us into the legal accountability, national and international. Our country of Canada is still resistant to change the criminal code, but we're, we're insistent that it's going to happen. And we feel with the social justice uh, movement from the United Nations, we're also working with the Every Woman Treaty, who have been, uh, we've been co-founders of that since 2014. So we've stayed with it long enough that we've got enough connections. We've got many more lawyers that are supporting us. And we're also involved with Fulfill, which is a, a group of feminist lawyers that are looking at the human rights of migrant women. And we're on the ethics committee there and are going to educate them about uh, non-state torture more. So, you know, our work is growing. We're very proud of it. And we feel very connected to the declaration and nine too, because they're human rights of children. Because of course, women, most of them were children when they, the torture started and they would be, they were so confused about themselves that they would be prime targets for anything about trans in school. You know, what their identity is. They're, they're very, you know, why wouldn't you be confused when you're being tortured every day at home? So we're, we're thinking of those children constantly. And, uh, it's just so important to be connected to a global movement. And that's why I said thank you to Joe and to Bernadette for keeping the, the door open to the world because I go every Saturday and listen and and uh, just feel part of a, a greater movement because this work for Jean and I can be isolating. I am often angry. And recently we had a mass casualty, like that's uh, under Article AD. We had a mass casualty commission and Linda and I were actively engaged. We gave um, four oral statements, made a final presentation and talked about human evil. And it reminds me of what's going on in the UK and the nurse who killed all the babies. And the parents are talking that they see human evil hidden behind a so-called caring nurse. And of course, that's what non-state torture 
brought to Linda and I that we had to address the issue of human evil in our book. So we addressed it in the mass casualty. And when they put out their final report, they totally dismissed saying anything about the women's stories that we said and asked them to deal with violence against women in all its forms. And that was part of their mandate. And they said that the biggest lesson for them was not to look away but they totally dismissed um, non-state torture victimization of women and children and did look away. And I'm very angry. So we we wrote a final report and then we uh, wrote to the commissioners and challenged them that they're saying one thing, which is patriarchy and misogyny, but there were two women commissioners and one male and uh, challenged them that indeed they didn't do what they said they did. They immediately invisibilized the women who, in our province, uh, who had endured non-state torture. And that's why I wrote in my statement there, um, Joe, that I'm angry. I'm still angry. I mean, we get angry every day, but we'll put the link in there if anybody wants to read what happened, because the reason I bring it up, because the, Commissioners figured, and the government, it was a national and a provincial report, they figured that it'll be read around the world around um, mass casualties. And of course, that's a ripple effect that non-state torture is invisible. So it has uh, a global impact when you're ignored and the women are ignored. So thank you. Linda, you said that when we were talking before this, that you thought that we're at a bit of a tipping point, that you're, I think both Jean and Linda said, your houses are very, very messy and you just don't have time to have meals sometimes because you're so busy, but you feel that there's, well, certainly Linda, you said that you feel there's a bit of a tipping point at the moment. What, What did you mean by that? Well, I just think that uh, the world is in such chaos. I think with the backlash, the huge backlash against women and COVID and climate crisis, I think that we're in another 30-year turning transition, transformational point. And I think that for women, it's a tipping point because we wouldn't have a backlash if we hadn't been so successful in getting women on the table. So if we can, you know, just keep keep steady and keep pushing against the backlash. And that's what we're doing, everyone that's here today. We're talking about the human rights of women. We're not going to be invisibilized. I think that we will succeed. I really believe that. And of course, we know in crisis, it, the the success happens on the event horizon. And all those who have worked hard to get all their theory and practice in order, they're the ones that can hop in when the world kind of collapses. And that's where I feel any of us transformers, and I I think Jean and I are a part of that, that our work will fit in. And I'm already seeing that. I'm already seeing that happen with our work, that uh, structures are kind of starting to uh, look for something that fits and our work is starting to fit in ways that never did before. So I believe, and I've seen that, I believe that all along, or I wouldn't have started it. So I feel it's coming now. And I'm th- I'm thankful we're ready. <laughs> That's what yeah. I feel ready. And uh, another question I have is about young women um, who are these days subjected to more and more violence and torture in their relationships. They're just sort of starting out in life. And if they get a boyfriend, then they suddenly, you know, they'll do something um have something done to them by this 
aggressive, violent man, uh, young man. Um, have you found that you can reach young women with your work and that more young women are reaching out to you? The yeah, the interesting thing, Linda and I were on a, a private meeting actually with young women. And of course, we've been around for quite a long time. And it was rather shocking, I have to say, that they couldn't distinguish between what love and caring and I guess respectful sexual behavior and violence was. I mean, it was um, a shocking surprise because some of them said uh, in their sexual relationships, they were being beaten and kicked and, and strangled and choked and they didn't know the difference. Now, Linda and I, um, around the young people, we've educated young people, like that's grade seven and high school and um, they want to talk. They want to talk and have clarity. And we found that especially the young men get confused because the, the so-called issue of sex work and gender and all of that new ideology, I guess you'd have to say so-called, is confusing them. Yes, I think... Um, yeah, well, mothers, conversation. Hmm. mothers tell us that they give our book to their teenage daughters yeah. and they just lap it up. So that's exciting. Yeah. And you know, we have young men. Uh, there's a, a playwright that uh, wants to do a play on our work. And she's working with a young young man who's a graphic artist. And he's really excited to be part of it because young men don't want this either. Now, I'm, you know, lots of young men are indoctrinated, but, but there's a population of young men that are starving for healthy conversation. But I think what struck me the most, you know, we see all this kink and BDSM, is that a young woman said to us, she thought that that she was a heterosexual woman. She thought that sex always had to be painful. That 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 was her. Wow. I, I'm like, okay, this yeah. this is bad. What is the difference between state torture and non-state torture? Just, I think it's good to sort of reiterate that. So state torture is, is torture that is supported and ordered by the state. So it would be military, prisoner of war, what happens in embassies, police stations, um, Non-state torture is uh, torture that happens by the everyday person that is not endorsed by the state, not known by the state in the sense of that they don't know that uh, so and so's father is torturing the little girl at night in the in the torture room in the basement. Um, so it's it's done by parents, human traffickers, uh, prostitutes, pornographers, or organized crime gangs. It's FGM. It's all of those everyday kinds of torture. That, and there's much more non-state torture than there is state torture. That's the thing. The state gets the prevalence because it's patriarchal and patriarchy wants to invisibilize the non-state torture because it only happens to women and girls. You know, it's, it's not as important. Jean and I are in the battle now trying to get adult entertainment out of the, the bylaws in our community. And in their description of adult entertainment, they even have the word designed to exploit the sexual aspects. So that's even right in their in their document in the town. And then the bottom of the uh, little fact, they have a picture of a, a nude woman, uh, you know. So the misogyny is right out there and we're getting resistance from 
the men planners saying that they the bylaw is there to prevent anybody from coming in and they're making it so hard to put it put it in so you know this patriarchy is, is always surprising and we probably will lose but as we know strip clubs are an entry point to human trafficking and and to torture and that's our argument but the battle continues and and we'll i'm going to keep it up i won't speak for Jean. i'm keeping it up till i take my last breath we're now going to move to our next speaker, who is Kate Barker. Kate Barker is the CEO of LGB Alliance and is going to give us a broad overview of um, what's happening with LGB Alliance and what activities, uh, etc. So thank you so much for coming, Kate. Oh, no, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. Hello, everybody. Um, yes. So um, in, in putting this together, I, I putting together some notes. I was having a think about the title for this and I came up with um, sticks and stones and I was reflecting on the notion that we've been lucky enough at LGB Alliance never to have been attacked. We've been threatened by protesters before um, and, and lucky enough not to have been punched in the face by misogynists, as I know other women have when they've been peacefully um, protecting the erasure of their, of their rights. However, we have been called a lot of names and we continue to be called names so I had a look on um, Twitter this morning and just just for a little selection um, for your interest of the kind of things that we're that we're called and I found um, just in a short search uh, we're a hate group we're Nazis racists anti-abortionists the religious right uh, guff monkeys which was an, which was an odd one a uh, tiny little ball of hate and spite I also, we're always the so-called LGB alliance, which I find very difficult to understand because even if they really hate us, that is our literal name. But we get that all the time anyway, the so-called LGB alliance. And then there's fascists, scum, murderers, um, turfs. I'm, I'm fine with that one. Um, but the worst and the most outrageous thing they say about us consistently um, is that they say we're straight, which, of course, um, we're not. Now, the name calling, I know that's probably common for all of us when we're, you know, open about our open about our position. And it doesn't hurt us personally anymore within the organisation, although it is it is really wearing. And when it becomes personal, it, it's it become can be difficult to handle. Um, but what it does do is it hurts our reputation as an organisation. So we're a registered charity um, and we've had grants withdrawn that we've already been awarded following an out, a big outcry on social media. We've had, we find it very difficult to book venues. And sometimes when we do book venues, they'll get wind of the fact that we're going to be there. Um, and then that venue will be closed to us within just a few hours. Politicians that we would like to be talking to are the ones who are least likely to want to talk to us because of our reputation. But I, also really very many people who are sympathetic to us and, um, are afraid to say so publicly. And I think that really says something um, frightening about the state of our, of our broader society, that even to express an opinion that you think LGB Alliance might have a point on some things um, is absolutely forbidden and people feel they'll be cancelled or attacked for doing so. So it's a really scary state of affairs. And, and most significantly, that name-calling essentially is what led to our court case Mermaids took us to court basically because they said we were a hate group and that we shouldn't therefore have charitable status. 
Um, that court case took two years. It cost us a quarter of a million pounds. It sucked up enormous amount of time and effort. You know, and that money could have been spent on some of the work that we actually want to do. And it was a huge personal strain, particularly uh, for the for the people who were actually had to be witnesses and, and our founders. It was just, you know, it was absolutely terrible. Now we won, so that's that's fantastic. Um, but I would say that all of this name calling, and I think that's something that we're all subject to, not, not just LGB Alliance, um, however loud it is and ha- however vicious it is, in some ways, it's a bit of a distraction. Um, and I think there's something much more dangerous and pernicious going on under the surface, a little bit more quietly. And that's the coercion of our of our language so that we are the, the, the coercive appropriation of our language. So we, we are not even allowed to have the words to describe ourselves, to describe our, our unique experience of being in the world. Um, and if we if we can't describe ourselves and our experiences, you also can't effectively delineate the discrimination that you might be um, that you might be facing. So it's a really peculiar and effective way to silence women, which is just not not necessarily to tell them to shut up, but just to repurpose the words so that they no longer have the meaning that you need them to have. And that's just that's just going on everywhere. Um, so I want to talk to you about how that relates to uh, the latest campaign that we've worked on. But I'll sort of take a step backwards first for people that don't don't know anything about us. So um, LGB Alliance was formed in 2019 by two absolutely amazing, brilliant women, both lesbians, um, lifelong campaigners for gay rights. And that's Bev Jackson and Kate Harris. Um, our, our, I'm the CEO and I'm clearly a woman. Our chair is a woman. Most of our staff, most of our volunteers are women. And we're really keenly aware that there's the dual discrimination that we face as lesbians and as women, which is why a lot of the work that we do is very much focused on lesbians rather than gay men. It's not just the fact that there's more women who work for us than there are men, but I think it's women who are disproportionately um, feeling uh, feeling crushed by what's happening at the moment. Um, now, um, all of the cases that, so, so what, I'll tell you what we actually do. So um, we're not a membership organisation, but our support, the background to us, our supporters are around, we've, we've done some supporter surveys, about 34% of us are lesbians, 33% are gay men, about 20% are straight people, and we're very happy with them as allies, and 12% of people are bisexuals. We are very often uh, accused of being a right-wing organisation or we're funded by some shady right-wing opaque groups. But actually our politics, even though we're not a partisan group, are broadly left. So we ask people, where do you see yourself in political terms as well? Um, And the survey showed that uh, 57% of our supporters described themselves as being, their politics as being left or centre-left. 16% 16% as centrist and 21% as right or centre-right. It's actually quite telling that when you broke that down, the, the people who said they were right or centre-right were nearly all of our male supporters. So as a, as a group, we do fit the age-old stereotype of the lefty lesbian, and that's fine, and we're all quite, we're all quite happy with that. We might not be portrayed as that um, in, the, in the wider world, but that, that's the way it is. 
So what we actually do is we scrutinise legislation um, and we highlight where we think it might discriminate against LGB people. We try as hard as we can to make friends with politicians in order that we're going to be able to influence policymaking um, and make it in favour of LGB people. We campaign for free speech and discourse on, on all issues. Now, that's, that stands in really stark contrast, contrast to the no debate uh, mantra that's come from Stonewall and I think is um, pretty much responsible for the, for the trouble that we find ourselves in now, that it's not just that, that we are not allowed to debate the issues, but at the same time, they've been dismantling the words for us to be able to do so even if we are brave enough to stand up and say, this is not right. So you've got those dual things happening at the same time. Um, we run lots of campaigns as well, and we've run campaigns which have been successful against the medicalization of gender non-conforming children. Um, and that would, if we're talking about girls, we're basically talking about tomboys, tomboys who are on the pathway to gender clinics um, who, who are overwhelmingly girls, the young people that go to gender clinics, and they overwhelmingly state that they are attracted to people of the same sex. So what we're seeing is the medicalization with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, and then moving along the pathway to um, possibly even surgery. You, what you've got is a cohort of young girls who, if left alone, would grow up to be happily lesbian. And it's an absolute, it's the biggest medical scandal of the century in my view, and as it starts to unravel and as this cohort of girls becomes dissatisfied with what they saw as a quick fix for their own unhappiness with their bodies, um, I, I, I think it's we're going to see an absolute tragedy unfold and people who've said nothing um, and let this happen will really have to search their souls about why they stayed silent. So that's a really, really key issue for us. And that issue is how we I got involved with LGB Alliance. Kate Harris was telling me about um, puberty blockers. Um, we, we met at some event and my, my background is running a creative agency. So I put together a marketing piece for them, a little film, which I'm still really proud of. And it said, um, it said, some people think girls who like football need puberty blockers and a bilater bilateral mastectomy. And we think they need football boots. And that's really essentially the nub of our position on the medicalization of adolescents. It's let children be gender non-conforming and give them the time and space to work it out for themselves. Um, we also run a national conference and it's just coming up. It's on the 27th of October at the QE2 Centre in London. Get your tickets. It's brilliant. It's a really good day. Um, a good lunch and there's a disco at the end. Um, but it does get more importantly, it covers all the really pressing issues um, and it gets it gets LGB people together. And that's something that we, as a community, none of us really like that word, but you know what I mean, that we so rarely have these days. It's really, really rare to get a big gathering of people who are all lesbians or all gay men or all LGB people together because our groups have not been permitted to, to gather. So our conference is a really good opportunity to get up to a thousand people together in a room really just celebrating what it means to be lesbian or gay or bisexual because it's not all doom and gloom and it used to be fun and we think it can be fun again and that's part of our remit as well providing role models for young people to show that you, know, you can be you can be 
a, a proud lesbian or or gay man, gay man, and that there's no need to mutilate your body in order to conform to somebody else's stereotype, regressive stereotype of who you should be. Um, so we also spend time trying to raise money. We all, all our funding is from individual donations and not as people speculate through the Heritage Foundation or all kinds of uh, evangelical churches in America or something like that. You know, it's all through individual donations. So it's a constant struggle to try and um, generate funds for us to just to be able to exist and to, and to be able to continue putting on events and running campaigns. So lots of the work we do is is not campaigns and it's a bit behind the scenes. So I'll give you just a couple of examples of things that we've done recently that are very typical. So we helped, um, a woman approached us who works in a big national institution um, in, and she is a senior person and she runs the LGB group in that institution. And for years and years, it's been very successful and she's had 300 people come along and as well as the LGB group, there's a trans group, trans staff group, and a non-binary staff group. And both those two groups only allow trans people or only allow non-binary people entry into them. Now, the LGB group um, was approached by a trans-identifying male, a cross-dressing man, who said he was a lesbian and he would like to join. Um and this is about the, the taking our language and it's been very difficult to counter. So this, this man said he was a lesbian and wanted to join the group. So the person we're helping let him come into the group. He was very aggressive. He began berating everybody else that turned up for their meetings, which is more or less generally just social events, uh, telling them that they were transphobic because they were same sex attracted rather than same gender attracted. So he was sore, basically, that the lesbians were not attracted to him because he identified a lesbian. He said he was a lesbian. Therefore, the lesbians who weren't attracted to him, that was their fault. That was their problem. They should educate themselves. They were transphobic. So this continued in the group um, until our, the person we're helping said recently she sent out a notification to people to join the usual subcommittees that she runs. Um, she'd usually, you know, 40 or 50 people reply and volunteer, put their hand up to be on the committee. This time, 13 people replied, and every single one of them was a trans or a non-binary person who've infiltrated the group, even though they have their own group. And the lesbians and the gay men and the bisexuals have fled. They've, they've, they've fled from it. So now they go from having their support group to having no support at all. And of course, that's not the end of it because our person was called into HR and senior management and quizzed about her transphobia because she believes that homosexuality is same sex attraction and that lesbians are not attracted to a man simply because he decides that he feels like a woman. And this is at the heart of, of a lot of issues that we deal with. Other, other um, people that we help, we get a lot of letters, a lot of emails from parents who are desperately worried about what's, what's happening in schools. We're helping a woman who, whose daughter told her that she was a lesbian. Uh, she's about 15 years old. And the girl seemed quite like okay with that. She, she talked it through with her mom. She felt that was quite cool. She went into school, didn't get a very positive reaction, became very quiet about it. 
Um, and what had happened was that the school had referred the girl without either of her parents' knowledge to a trans charity and set her up with in-person meetings with a counsellor. So the school had decided that the girl maybe was trans. Um, and that charity had given her a breast binder. And then that charity had later made her an appointment with a private GP. Uh, they had paid the fee and the girl was taking hormones. Now, this was when she hit 16. So the girl was, was taking cross-sex hormones. And then one evening, the family, there was a knock at the door and it was a social worker from Brighton and Hove Council. Anyone who's in the UK won't be surprised to hear that it's Brighton and Hove. And it was Brighton and Hove Council. And the social worker came in and announced that, right, you've got a son now and not a daughter. If there's, if you don't accommodate this, if you don't change your attitudes, which are a real telling off, your child will be taken away. And that evening, um, the woman's husband, the father, um, attempted suicide um, about it. And now the, the, the child has, has been removed the family the family is entirely broken down um and we hear that we get a lot of letters not many as extreme as that but a lot of letters from parents whose lesbian daughters have been told by outsiders that being a lesbian isn't appropriate and if they if they've got short hair or if they're sporty or if they're attracted to girls these are all signs that they are really born in the wrong body and that they should be that they should be boys so that, that's a main that's that's a significant part of what we do, which is is helping individuals who who approach us. And all the cases are very different, but they do all seem to have this common denominator. And that is again returning to this idea that women we are unable to protect our our rights or to define the discrimination that we face because our language has been kind of malappropriated and then mangled and flipped and then thrown thrown back at us so um our most recent project so the last one i'll tell you about is and people again in the uk may have seen this in the news and we're really really pleased with the way with the way this went but it's a very typical problem and i think we're going to see more of it so we were approached by um a very lovely uh woman called jenny watson and she's a town planner at camden council the workiest of the woke um, and she's been running lesbian social events, including lesbian speed dating events for about five years in the centre of London in, in, in a couple of different venues. So she was happily having one of her speed dating events in a pub off Tottenham Court Road. And a guy turned up and he was wearing head to toe purple latex, obviously all skin tight, all the better to display his erection. Um, now, I've never been to lesbian speed dating, but and I think mo most of us can agree that the last thing that's going to improve it is that, you know, or any man, whether or not he's in latex and got an erection. Um, and Jenny said, you know, she feels ashamed of herself, but she didn't say anything because she was too afraid of him. He said he, he announced that he was a lesbian. She was she, she didn't know how to respond. She was She was afraid of his reaction if she said he wasn't. And then a few months later, another guy came and he was brushing up against women in the in the queue at the toilets and making people feel uncomfortable. They complained to her. And, and this time she said, I, I could not stay silent. 
really big guy. She said I was shaking, my voice was shaking, but I had to say to him, you, this is a this is a, an event for lesbians. Lesbians are women. You're not welcome. You need to go. So on her website, it clearly said this is a lesbian speed dating event, but clearly that's not enough because the word lesbian now can include a male. So she went back onto her website and she changed the wording. So it said, um, this is a women-only event for lesbians. Do not come if you're a man. You are not a lesbian. Now, this enraged the trans-identifying men who began to wage a huge campaign and a vendetta against her. Um, and it was led by a, a person called Emily, who's six foot two and looks like a scaffolder, um, who wrote to say that he was a lesbian with the, and he would very much like to come along to speed dating. Um, and, uh, and, and Jenny said, said no. So he began to organise with other activists and they wrote to Camden Council where she works and said, this person is a hateful transphobe and she must be sacked. And it triggered an investigation into her, which was hugely stressful. They contacted the platform where she sells her tickets um, and attempted to shut that down. They sent her some very unsettling emails, things like, this is not going to go away. Um, and it, one day she opened her post and there was a gang rape threat in her post, in her own home, on her doormat. It's terrifying. And then, of course, they pressured the pub where she was having the event and persuaded them to close it. And, that, and that's where we, the point at which we began to help. So I went with her and I went to see the manager of the pub and I went to see the area manager to try and understand their decision and to help. The pub manager was extremely smug and very pleased with himself. And he said to us, no, no, this event must be cancelled because it is not inclusive. And, and when pressed on, well, what do you mean inclusive? In inclusive of whom? Well, it must include it must include men or it does not align with the values of the pub. He told us that complaints have been received by men who were lesbians. And this is where you go down a sort of a rabbit hole of what does this all mean? Men who were lesbians who said it was unfair they were not welcome to attend. Now, it's clear that in the wider world, most people would think it absolutely absurd that the desire of a trans-identifying man to go to a lesbian event was considered more important than all of the women who were attending who wanted it to be women only. But the issue once more is with language, and it's uh, the issue is with Stonewall, who've been deliberately feeding um, information to businesses about what is and what isn't lawful in an effort to subvert the law to give trans people rights over women which they never previously have and which the law does not offer them. So it's the equality and diversity, <clears throat> excuse me, industry, um, which has, has really got its tentacles into every large organization, every institution in the country. And the source material for all these presentations comes from Stonewall and it comes from TQ plus lobby groups, groups that are really misogynistic to the core which deliberately misrepresent the Equality Act 2010 suggests that trans people's rights are always preeminent. And what they do is by replacing the biological reality of sex with this sort of very nebulous um, idea of, of gender, um, the result is that people who are same-sex attracted find themselves 
uh, without the words to describe the discrimination, they find themselves at the bottom of the heap. And it, it's an approach that because businesses call in consultants and they, they do these presentations, and a lot of businesses genuinely think that a trans-identifying male may do whatever he likes whenever he chooses, and it is, in fact, unlawful to stand in his way. And that's their, that's their quick takeout, that in the sort of hierarchy of, of marginalisation, men somehow have managed to make their way to the top and same-sex attractive people are at the bottom. So we wrote, we're not, we're not litigious um, as an organisation, partly because we're a charity, it doesn't, it's not a good use of funds, which are scarce. But also I think people are finding it, there's a little bit of a weariness about crowdfunding for court cases now, especially that they last a long time, they cost a huge amount of money and there's a cost of living crisis. So, so instead I wrote to the um, CEO of the Stonegate Group, which owned this pub. It's the biggest pub group in the country. They own 1,400 venues, lots of, lots of big venues. And I said, I pointed out that it was probably dis- illegal to discriminate against the lesbian group. And I just asked him a couple of sensible questions, which were, if a lesbian group is forced to allow a man to attend, is it still a lesbian group? Some really simple questions like that, really simple common sense questions. And um, I think it was interesting that actually I received a, quite a gracious letter back quite quickly. And it's at times like this that it reminded me that we are winning this fight because there are a lot of people who, outside of our circle, upon hearing the message, they think it's ridiculous that a, a mother is now a birthing parent or that a man can click his fingers and say that he's a woman. People don't believe it. They think it's ridiculous that the the head of this organisation absolutely got it that a man cannot steal our label and he reinstated Jenny's event. And it was satisfying too. They did something which we didn't ask for, which was to launch an investigation into the manager of that pub because of comments he'd made about turfs and... um, you know, a, a, a few un- a unpleasant comments. And we didn't ask for that because we didn't know if we'd get it or not, but it was offered up. And at that, um, that in now, because they're the biggest pub group in, in the country, we're, we've made a, a kind of a case study for that. And we're being approached by other people who are trying to run lesbian events in different venues in different parts of the country. And we've now got an approach that we think works, which is, pointing out without sending a legal letter where the it's likely that these people are breaking the law, making some really sensible statements about why lesbians need their own spaces and just exerting a little bit of pressure. And it doesn't hurt either that it comes with the backing of LGB Alliance. And I think some of these organisations will look at, they'll look us up and they'll think, oh, those were those crackpots that spent, you know, they were willing to take on mermaids in court, even though we were defending ourselves maybe they would launch a court case. So it just gives a little bit of weight to the individual that we're helping, that we're kind of behind and and able to do something about it. And it's wonderful, but it's also been wonderful to see Jenny, how excited she is. She's had these events again, and she had one last night in a a club in Leicester Square, which is also owned by the Stonegate Group, and had 200 women there um, and was able to say on her on her website and on the meetup about this is a women only this is lesbian 
she didn't need to say don't come if you're a man because we've already made that case and, and men won't be admitted so it does feel like a little step forward so to, to, to conclude really I things like lesbian speed dating by definition are not are not for everyone um and the notion that all events have to be inclusive do really make a, a sort of nonsense of the specific protections of the Equality Act. So we need to, we, a couple of things we need to do. We need to make it clear that categories are exclusionary. When people pipe up, you know, you're being exclusionary. Well, so what? That's how categories work. And we need to be a bit stronger, a bit stronger on that. Um, you know, they tell you who can come in and who can't. Um, and we need to be able to, to identify and define our categories and fight for them and stand up for them. I think we need to stand very firm on language. To my mind, it was a mistake that we that trans women slipped under the under the radar because it was a slippery slope to them claiming woman. Um, and trans identifying male are coming for female now as well. So we need to make it really, really clear at LGBT Alliance that lesbian is, is already taken. And heterosexual trans-identifying men need to think of their own words uh, and not and not try and purloin ours. Um, we're also calling for businesses and institutions to move away from this entreaty to be kind. Which, if you look at any organisation, you look at their vision and values. It's always they always want to be kind. Stop being kind. It's time to be fair. That's all. You know, fair to everybody. That's all everybody wants. Um, and we're also trying to ensure that that talking about language as, as often as we can so that because it can sometimes see arcane, seem a bit arcane or a bit trivial to some people just fiddling about with language it seems a bit peripheral to the big struggle but I would argue it's right at the heart of it and it's at the it's at the the, the mangling of the languages at the core of this movement which really seeks to disenfranchise women and lesbians so I think we need to keep an eye on it and we need to stand firm on it um, and a renewed focus on the Equality Act in, in Parliament and a clarification that sex means sex is something we're pushing for too. But lastly, I think the most important thing we do and the, the reason we exist um, is, to, is to support individual lesbians and gay men and bisexuals. And we found as a, as a strategy that a really good way to do that is to be able to find a person who embodies the... The, the problem that we're trying to solve so that people can connect with them, can understand with Jenny, they could understand that um, how awful that this lovely young woman just trying to have a nice night out um, and some crazy guys are, try, are trying to gate crash it. We need, we need people to come forward with their stories so that people can identify with them, feel warm towards them. Um, and in that way, we're helping individuals, but I really, really think we can, and we are, shifting public perception about what it means to be gay and what it means to fight for our for our rights. You do quite a lot of international work and you have groups internationally. Can you round up how that's going and how many different groups you have? Yeah, so, so when we first started, um, so many people were interested in countries around the world, particularly ones that were really um, suffering under gen you know, gender ideology, that they got in touch with us. And we were so thrilled and delighted that anyone was even remotely interested in us that we were like, yeah, great. And we sent our logo out left, right and centre. Um, so we've got what we have is actually lots of loosely affiliated groups of friends everywhere from sort of Iceland and Ireland and in the States and, of course, in Canada 
Um, and we're at the moment looking at ways that we can slightly formalize those links so we can share information better and we can be kind of an international force without each of those groups losing their autonomy because clearly every every country has has different issues and we as a as a kind of a head office don't have the resources or the staff to to be able to manage that so we're feeling our way at the moment how we can link up so we can talk a bit more on one voice as in one voice about some of the big issues but yeah they do some brilliant work LGBT alliance in australia is um you know doing some doing some really fantastic work as are other groups um but we don't we collaborate with them but we don't yeah. oversee them and we collaborate with each other but we're looking to formalize yeah. 